The House is now out of session and will not return for floor votes until June 14th. The Senate will come back Monday and stay in session through Thursday. This week in the Senate, they'll come back into session tomorrow with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on cloture on the nomination of Julian Javier Niels to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of New Jersey. On Tuesday, at a time to be determined, the Senate will proceed to up to four roll call votes on the Cornyn Amendment, numbered 1858 to S-1260, the Endless Frontiers Act, which strikes language that applies Davis-Bacon prevailing wage requirements to semiconductors language, a motion to waive a budget point of order on the emergency CHIPS funding, the adoption of the Schumer Substitute Amendment numbered 1502 as amended, and then finally passage of S-1260 as amended, if amended. In addition, Majority Leader Schumer filed cloture on the following, Regina M. Rodriguez to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of Colorado, and the motion to proceed to H.R. 7, the Paycheck Fairness Act. Now to saving the filibuster, two major developments on the filibuster front. First, Senate Majority Leader Schumer made clear that he will schedule a series of votes on the floor of the Senate designed to show everyone that Senate Republicans have no interest in bipartisanship, and Senate Democrats will have to destroy the filibuster if they expect to move any significant legislation through the Senate in this session of Congress. He indicated that he plans to bring S-1, the Corrupt Politicians Act, to the floor of the Senate for a procedural vote during the last week of June, and he will attempt to move other issues to the floor before them. Second, we heard something very significant from West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin this morning. Let me back up. Speaking in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on Tuesday, June 1, President Biden explained his inability to pass much of his radical agenda by blaming it on two recalcitrant Senate Democrats. Quote, I hear all the folks on TV saying, why doesn't Biden get this done? Well, he said, because Biden only has a majority of effectively four votes in the House and a tie in the Senate with two members of the Senate who vote more with my Republican friends, end quote. Everyone knew who he was talking about, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, both of whom actually vote far more often with their Senate Democrat colleagues than they do with Senate Republicans. In that same speech, Biden then tasked Vice President Kamala Harris with riding herd on efforts to pass S-1 through the Senate. Said Biden, quote, to signify the importance of our efforts, today I'm asking Vice President Harris to help these efforts and lead them among her many other responsibilities, end quote. That's the same Vice President Harris who offended Senator Manchin earlier this year when, without anyone in her office showing the courtesy of giving him a heads up, she appeared on a West Virginia TV station to pressure him to support the $1.9 trillion Biden coronavirus relief package. So it should really have come as no surprise when this morning Senator Manchin published in the Charleston Gazette Mail an op-ed entitled, Joe Manchin, Why I'm Voting Against the For the People Act. In it, he wrote, quote, I believe that partisan voting legislation will destroy the already weakening bonds of our democracy. And for that reason, I will vote against the For the People Act. Furthermore, I will not vote to weaken or eliminate the filibuster. For as long as I have the privilege of being your U.S. Senator, I will fight to represent the people of West Virginia to seek bipartisan compromise, no matter how difficult, and to develop the political bonds that end divisions and help unite the country we love, end quote. To date, not a single Republican in the Senate has indicated support for S-1. If that holds true, 
and no Republican votes to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to S-1. And Senator Manchin follows through and refuses to vote to blow up the filibuster. Then S-1 will have been successfully blocked. Now, I'm fairly confident there will be no GOP votes in support of a motion to proceed to S-1. While I'd love to say I'm just as confident that Senator Manchin will hold fast, his history suggests the prudent play is not to count on him being the 51st vote against anything. His history shows he's happy to be the 52nd or 53rd vote, but not the 51st. So let's keep our fingers crossed and keep the pressure on. Multiple reconciliation bills, part two. Remember several months ago when Senate parliamentarian Elizabeth McDonough ruled that Majority Leader Schumer's staff had indeed found a loophole in the Budget Act that seemed to allow multiple uses of a budget resolution for reconciliation purposes. And it looked like Leader Schumer was going to be able to pass multiple reconciliation bills on the basis of the one budget resolution. And remember how no one other than Senator Schumer's staff had actually heard this directly from the parliamentarian. And there were still many questions left unanswered about how exactly this would work. And we were all told our questions would be answered in due time. Well, the Senate parliamentarian decided to answer those questions last Friday. McDonough issued new guidance to Senate staff, and that guidance was a doozy. As happy as Schumer's staff was at the original ruling several months ago is how unhappy they were last week when they got details of how it would work. Essentially, her four-page opinion in the words of Roll Call, quote, makes clear her view that the framers of the 1974 law establishing the modern budget process didn't intend for lawmakers to be able to use the budget reconciliation process as many times as they could jam into a given year. In addition, she wrote that a revised budget resolution with additional reconciliation instructions can't be automatically discharged to the floor in the absence of a Senate budget panel markup. That's in contrast to a regular budget resolution, which can be brought up any time on the floor after April 1 if the committee hasn't acted. The practical effect of that stipulation is that the use of a revised budget resolution to push through multiple reconciliation bills is unlikely until the next Congress at the earliest, given the 50-50 Senate split and evenly divided Senate budget panel. That's because even if Democratic leaders had 51 votes to discharge a revised budget resolution to the floor if a markup results in a tie vote, Republicans could deny Democrats a quorum to vote on the blueprint in committee. Committee rules require a majority of budget panel members to be present for a quorum, and proxies don't count toward a quorum. End quote. The parliamentarian wrote in her guidance that the earlier Congress that enacted the law intended for the provision to be used only, quote, in extraordinary circumstances and not for things that should have been or could have been foreseen and handled, end quote, in a regular budget resolution. The political effect of this is simple. Leader Schumer will not be able to use the budget process to bring multiple reconciliation bills to the floor of the Senate this year. Instead of splitting up President Biden's infrastructure bills into two bills, one for the so-called hard infrastructure like roads, bridges, and tunnels, and the other for so-called soft infrastructure like paid family leave and education spending, he is going to have to jam them together into one bill, and that's going to make that bill tougher to pass. Now to the Biden budget. Everyone in the Washington swamp knows Friday is called take out the trash day. That's because relatively speaking, fewer people watch the news on TV on Friday nights or read the newspaper on Saturday morning. So when a political actor has to release bad news, he or she often chooses to do so on a Friday late afternoon. 
That way they can meet their obligation to release the bad news, but minimize the political damage incurred by limiting the size of the audience. So it was a bit surprising when late on the Friday afternoon before the beginning of a three-day holiday, the Biden administration chose to release its official budget proposal for fiscal year 2022. One read of the budget proposal, though, revealed why the Biden administration doesn't want anyone to see that budget. It's a piece of garbage. Here's the top line. The Biden budget proposes to spend $6 trillion in fiscal year 2022, which would represent about a 50% increase in the size of the budget over three years ago. That would include a $1.8 trillion deficit in FY22. By the end of the 10-year budget window, the federal government would be spending $8.2 trillion in FY 2031. Over 10 years, the national debt would move from its current level at $28 trillion to $39 trillion. The national debt would grow to 117% of the size of the gross domestic product, the highest level since World War II. And here's the killer. Growth is projected to come in at about 5% in FY21 about 4% in FY22, about 2.2% in FY23, and then 1.8% for the next eight years. That is, spending all this money would not result in building a better, stronger economy with job growth and wage growth. It would simply be spending. That is, it's not an investment. It's simply spending for the sake of spending. That is a remarkable bit of self-revelation. Budget documents are usually so full of optimistic projections that budget writers decades ago introduced the phrase rosy scenario into the lawmaker's lexicon. This Biden budget clearly has never met rosy scenario. Not only that, some of the things contained in this budget are truly radical. For example, it's been settled law since the 1970s that the U.S. government does not spend taxpayer dollars to fund abortions except in cases of rape or incest or a threat to the life of the mother. The provision of law that governs this is called the Hyde Amendment after its author, Congressman Henry Hyde. Since the 1970s, no president, not Jimmy Carter, not Bill Clinton, not even Barack Obama, has attempted to buck this policy. Until now. Joe Biden's proposed budget does away with the Hyde Amendment and its restriction on taxpayer funding of abortion. This budget is not serious. It's radical. Jenny Beth published a piece about this, and you can find it in the suggested reading. Now to Fauci email revelations. BuzzFeed and The Washington Post got their hands on thousands of Dr. Anthony Fauci's emails through Freedom of Information Act requests and published a whole bunch of them. Not surprisingly, Fauci turns out to be just as smarmy in his private email exchanges as he is on television. You can find links in the suggested reading. Facebook announced two weeks ago that it had ended its ban on posts asserting that COVID-19 was man-made or manufactured, and it became open season once again on the COVID origin story. All of a sudden, an awful lot of actors were openly discussing the possibility that rather than being a purely natural event, Perhaps the coronavirus pandemic was the result of a release of the virus from a lab in Wuhan, China. Vanity Fair published an eye-opening article last week making the case for an engineered origin. I'm not going to go into the details of the argument. You can read it for yourself because I've included a link to the Vanity Fair piece in the suggested reading. What's important to know now is that because there are an awful lot of people now openly discussing the possibility that the coronavirus was born in a Chinese lab, there are moves afoot to establish a national commission to investigate the origins of the coronavirus. Now to the Don't Weaponize the IRS Act. On Thursday, May 20th, Republican Senator Mike Braun of Indiana 
introduced S-1777, a bill to amend the Internal Revenue Code of 1986 to codify the Trump administration rule on reporting requirements of exempt organizations. Entitled the Don't Weaponize the IRS Act, the bill now has 44 Senate Republican co-sponsors, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. One of the neat things the Trump administration did was to enact a new rule that protected tax-exempt organizations from unnecessarily from unnecessary filing requirements. Prior to the enactment of the rule, the IRS required tax-exempt organizations to file with their annual tax returns a piece of paper called a Schedule B, which was a list of people who had donated to the organization in the amount of $5,000 or more during a given year. IRS Commissioner John Koskinen, in testimony before Congress, told the Congress that the IRS did not need that information and, in fact, would like the Congress to amend the tax code to remove the requirement that tax-exempt organizations hand over that information because all the IRS could do with it was get itself in trouble. It was illegal for the IRS to make that information public, and the information was not used in the administration of the tax code, so it was deemed unnecessary by the IRS. You may recall what happened to major donors to the National Organization for Marriage when the organization's Schedule B was somehow leaked to left-wing opponents of the organization. The IRS had to settle that matter financially and apologize to the National Organization for Marriage. In fact, the IRS itself held a hearing at which Jenny Beth testified in favor of removing the requirement that tax-exempt organizations file this information with their tax returns. So along came the Trump administration, and the Trump administration said, law? Heck, we can do that by issuing a new rule. And they issued a new rule that overturned the requirement that tax-exempt organizations file a Schedule B. That did not make the left happy, not one bit. So the left slipped into H.R. 1 and S. 1, a provision that would overturn that Trump administration rule and once again require tax-exempt organizations to file that piece of paper with the IRS as part of their annual tax return. We know why the left wants to know everyone's donors. Sheldon Whitehouse, the liberal Democrat senator from Rhode Island, is a nut on this issue. He wants to expose everyone's donors so they can be doxxed. This is such a significant issue that it's not enough simply to prevent the passage of S-1 through the Senate. So Senator Braun and his colleagues have introduced S-1777, the Don't Weaponize the IRS Act, to codify that rule and make it a permanent part of the law. That way, neither the Biden administration nor any future Democrat administration would be able to reverse that Trump administration rule and force tax-exempt organizations to reveal their donors again. Now, given that there's a Democrat in the White House and Democrats control both House and Senate, the prospects for the Don't Weaponize the IRS Act passing in the 117th Congress are twofold, slim and none. But the proposed law is an excellent example of the kind of law that can be passed to protect tax-exempt organizations when next we have conservatives in control of the White House and Congress, and it can serve as an incentive to help motivate our allies to make that happen. Now to the National Commission to investigate the January 6th attack. On the morning of Friday, May 28th, the Senate finally took up a motion to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to H.R. 3233 the bill to establish the National Commission to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol complex. Six Republicans, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Rob Portman of Ohio, Mitt Romney of Utah, and Ben Sass of Nebraska, voted with 48 Democrats to invoke cloture. Their 54 combined votes fell short of the 60 votes needed to invoke cloture, so the measure failed. The vote came on the 145th day since the first day of the 117th Congress. 
and it was the 218th vote cast by the Senate in this session. It was the first time Senate Republicans had filibustered a bill. So keep that in mind next time you hear a liberal say Republicans are abusing the filibuster. 145 days, 218 votes, one filibuster. Now to Trump and the conservative agenda. According to reporting by both Politico and the New York Times, President Trump is working with former Speaker Newt Gingrich, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and current Senator Lindsey Graham, a member of the heralded House Republican freshman class of 1994, to put together a new version of the contract with America, the policy document that almost all House Republican candidates ran on in the 1994 midterm elections. Wrote Politico, quote, it is likely to take an America first policy approach on everything from trade to immigration, end quote. Gingrich outlined a list of potential policy issues. Quote, it should be positive, he said. School choice, teaching American history for real, abolishing the 1619 project, eliminating critical race theory and what the Texas legislature is doing. We should say, bring it on, end quote. On Thursday of this week, while the House is still out of session, Republican Study Committee Chairman Jim Banks and other members of the RSC will meet with Trump in New Jersey to discuss policy. Now to Microsoft and China. Friday marked the 32nd anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party's crackdown on peaceful protesters in Tiananmen Square. But you wouldn't have known that if you had used the Microsoft Bing search engine to do a search for Tank Man, the iconic image of the young Chinese protester who bravely stood in front of a line of Chinese army tanks. Because if you conducted that search on Friday on the Microsoft search engine, you would have come up with no search results. We've known for some time that American companies bend the knee to the Chinese Communist Party for the privilege of being allowed to do business in that market. So it wouldn't be surprising to learn that Microsoft's search engine wasn't returning search results for Tank Man on the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre if that search were being conducted from China. But users in the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany, France, and Singapore got no search results either. Microsoft chalked it up to human error and apologized in what it hoped was a manner loud enough to be heard in the United States, United Kingdom, France, Germany, and Singapore, but not loud enough to be heard in Beijing. Finally, to infrastructure, part 17. After several more meetings, including an in-person sit-down last week between President Biden and lead Republican negotiator, West Virginia Senator Shelley Moore Capito, talks between Senate Republicans and the Biden White House on a possible infrastructure deal are still stuck. During a Friday afternoon phone call between Biden and Capito, Biden rejected the Senate GOP's latest offer, which was itself a response to Biden's latest offer. Republican senators believe the infrastructure bill should cost about a trillion dollars and should include an awful lot of money that's already been appropriated for pandemic relief, but not spent. Of their proposed trillion dollars, about 257 billion represents new spending, and about $750 billion represents money that's already been appropriated, but not yet spent. Democrats have come down on their side. Biden originally wanted to spend $2.3 trillion, but has since cut that number to $1.7 trillion. But that's all new money. So the two sides are more than $1.5 trillion apart. And they still haven't agreed on a definition of what exactly this money will be spent on. And they still have not agreed on how they will pay for it. Republicans continue to oppose raising corporate or individual tax rates and want to use user fees as the pay for, while Biden and his Democrat colleagues want to raise the corporate tax rate back to at least 25% and raise rates on upper income individual taxpayers. 
Biden's latest offer introduced a new twist into the pay for possibilities. Rather than focus on raising corporate and individual tax rates, he proposed figuring out some way to enforce a minimum tax on corporations that use provisions of the tax code to avoid taxation. To that end, he's been pushing internationally for an agreement that all countries would agree to a minimum 15% tax rate on corporations. He got some of what he wanted on that front yesterday when, following a meeting in London, top finance officials of the G7 nations announced their commitment to press for a global minimum tax at that level. Biden and Capito will talk again Monday. And that's our Washington Report for this week.